come before you again in the name of your son, Jesus. Father, and we desperately need your grace right now, God, because we are going to open your word, God, and we want to hear from you. Uh, Father, uh, no mere man who stands uh, on a stage with a microphone can change a heart, can reach a soul. God, it takes your word, and it takes not only us speaking your word, but it takes your spirit to do a work. God, to work that into our hearts. We can hear your word all day, every day, and remain unmoved and unfazed. So, God, uh, we're asking that you would do a work in us, God. Father, we pray that you would use your word to to build up our church. And, God, we we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, as uh, John just mentioned, uh, we're starting a new series this morning in Romans 10. Uh, and one of the reasons we wanted to be in Romans 10 for a few weeks is because it's in Romans 10 that Paul gives us so much motivation and background and foundation for the main thing that God has called us to do as a church, and that's to make disciples of Jesus. And in Romans 10, uh, as Paul grieves about his kinsmen according to the flesh, He tells us so much about why we should be so passionate about telling people about Jesus. He tells us so much about why he's so passionate about what it is God is doing through that, about the way that God works, the way that God saves. And so we wanted to spend a few weeks in this praying that God would use it to continue to make us a church and a family that has helping other people to know Jesus at the top of our priorities. So I want to start... just by saying this, because I think it relates to the, to the topic we're going to talk about today. And I may have said this before from this stage, but um, it's a particular quirk and a pet peeve of mine. But I really, really strongly dislike unnecessary help. When someone helps me, but I don't need it, it bothers me very deeply. And it's probably pride, but I don't want to say it's that, which is probably pride in itself. It really bothers me. More than your average person. It really bothers me when I have something covered and someone swoops in for the rescue without an invite. That bothers me deeply. And the ironic thing is, in God's providence, I'm surrounded by unnecessary helpers in every area of my life. It might be why I despise it so much. My mom was an uh, unnecessary helper. My sister is an unnecessary helper. God bless you. Uh, My wife is an unnecessary helper. Now, if you're wondering, hey, what's an unnecessary helper? An unnecessary helper is someone who's serving hearted but doesn't know when to turn the service off. My uh, assistant and role manager, Aaron, he's an unnecessary helper, and I even have a story to tell you about it because I'm a pretty independent person, and so I like to just do stuff if I can do it. If I need help, I'll let you know. So here's an example. We were driving to a venue for an event, and we're in the car. Neither one of us know how to get there, but you know what? There's this incredible invention called GPS. So I'm using GPS, and I'm just driving and directing, and I notice about halfway through the trip that he pulls out his own phone with the exact same GPS app open, and he begins to kind of try to secretly look at it like he don't trust me to get there. And so I noticed this, and I'm like, I know this dude is not. And then eventually he, I don't know if he gets more nervous, but he begins 
calling out the commands. All right, turn left here. And I'm like, bro, I have the same app right here. You Siri now? Are you Siri? Why are you calling out commands? It drove me crazy. And we had to have a time of confession and repentance to restore our relationship. <laughs> because I have an extreme dislike for unnecessary help. And I may be extreme in it, but all of us are like that at least to an extent. We don't ask for help or really appreciate help unless we feel like we need it. And when we have everything taken care of, we usually just prefer to take care of it ourselves. And when we need help, we'll ask for it. And that life philosophy has worked pretty good for me. But the one hole in that life philosophy is that we don't always know when we need help. That is sometimes when we need help, when we don't understand that we need help, and so we won't ask for it. And this is especially true when it comes to our spiritual lives. When we bring this same perspective, this I got this kind of perspective to our spiritual lives and our relationship with God, things go really bad really quickly. Because we assume that we can take care of everything, that we can put together ourselves what God requires on our own. And so Paul is going to tell us otherwise in this passage. He's going to tell us that trying to meet God's standards by ourselves and on our own is only going to keep us from meeting God's standards. And so we really want to pay attention to this passage because the truth is our attempts to please God could actually be the thing that keeps us from him if we're not careful. So I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. Uh, Romans 10, the, the, the whole book of Romans, I'll give you background while, while you're turning there. Romans is uh, a letter written by Paul the Apostle to the church in Rome. And uh, throughout this whole book, what we'll see from Paul is really a, a summary uh, of the gospel. He'll zoom in on very important parts of the gospel. He'll start out, he'll help us understand that we are all sinners and that the wrath of God is being uh, revealed from heaven and that both Jews and Gentiles need Jesus and we can be righteous through faith in Christ and that we're no longer slaves to sin and that there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And then when he gets to chapter 9, he begins to talk about uh, his family in the flesh, his kinsmen according to the flesh, as he says, because Paul is Jewish. And so Paul begins to talk about the way that his Jewish brothers and sisters have responded to Jesus. And this is what it says, Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 1. This is God's word. It says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, And seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. It's God's word. And those verses are going to be really important for us as we think about our own spiritual lives and as we think about those who we know and who we want to share the gospel with in family and friends. Let's ourselves not take this I got this approach to our spiritual lives and let's encourage others not to do that and here's the main point of the whole passage chasing righteousness on your own only keeps you from it chasing righteousness on your own only keeps you from it we need help so we want to start just by looking at our need that that's point number one the need want to start by looking at the need 
Paul talks about his free. Uh, of course, one of the most important people in my life was, was my dad. And my dad was not a very emotional person, which meant it wasn't strange for me to see him really happy or even mad, but it was strange for me to see him sad. I can only remember a couple times in my whole life ever seeing him cry. And, and one of the times when I saw him cry is when we went uh, to visit his family in Houston. And uh, we went, and he saw one of his sisters, and then we went on a drive. And I couldn't understand why my dad was suddenly so sad and why he was crying. And what I was too young to understand and catch on to was that one of his sisters at that time was addicted to crack, and he hadn't seen her since then. And so when he sees her, and he sees the way that it's changed her physical appearance, he's shaking. And so I don't think she would mind me sharing this because she's been clean for a long time, went to rehab, met her husband in rehab. They both met Jesus, and they love Jesus, and they're doing great. But at this time, my dad is brokenhearted, and it's obvious why, because he's seeing a, a family member who's being destroyed by something and is on a path to destruction and is clinging to the very thing that will destroy them. And so many of us have friends of family right now who are struggling with addiction, and what we know is that those who are addicted are deceived and that they think they're still in control. They think they can do it on their own. They don't think that they need help. And so it's very difficult for us to watch. It's hard to watch somebody run full speed off of a cliff, clinging to the thing that's going to destroy them. And this is where Paul finds himself when he thinks about his family according to the flesh, his Jewish brothers and sisters. He sees that they are on a path to destruction, and this destruction that they are headed for is much worse than physical death. They're headed for eternal destruction, and they need to be saved. And in the same way that I saw my dad have this deep sorrow and this unceasing anguish over the well-being of his sister, Paul has that for his Jewish brothers and sisters. I'm going to read verse 1 again. It says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. So Paul is brokenhearted over the fact that they're still lost, right? He's already made clear that everybody needs Jesus. Before this, he pointed out how strange it was that it would be his Jewish brothers and sisters who have rejected Christ, considering the fact that they have such an incredible history with the true God, the only nation who actually knew the true God. They're the ones who the Ten Commandments were given to. Right. They're even the ones that God sent prophets to tell them that their savior was coming. And then when he showed up to get them, they rejected him and killed him. He points out the irony of those things. And in chapter nine, when he talks about it, he, he says it like this. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. I mean, Paul is really heartbroken. He says he has not just sorrow, but great sorrow, a deep sadness. He says, you know, anguish is severe pain. He says he not only has severe pain, he has an unceasing severe pain, one that never stops. I imagine Paul being kept up at night by the thought of his brothers, his Jewish brothers and sisters being lost. I, I imagine that you know, he's distracted and he, and he can't stop thinking about it, cringing when he thinks about it, crying when he can't stop thinking about it. And why? It's not just that his Jewish brothers and sisters were having a hard time or they were just facing persecution or they just weren't the most powerful nation in the world. Paul is brokenhearted because they don't know Christ and he wants them to be saved. And he's in pain because they're not. 
So a quick side note based on what's happening here, the what we see in the life of Paul, it's okay for us to have particular burdens for particular groups of people. And we see this with Paul. We notice when it comes to our immediate families, we know it's okay to have particular burdens for your families or our really close friends. But with other relationships, for some reason, we assume when we become a Christian, we must erase all other associations and relationships that we have. But Scripture doesn't call us to do that. Paul has a particular burden for his particular ethnic group. So Scripture is going to give priority to church family. It is going to say we're one in the Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul has a special burden for them, partly because of their relationship with God, but also because he's a Jew too. So when blacks or Latinos or cops or soldiers or lawyers or artists feel a special burden for other people who are like them, it's okay. It's okay unless it turns into uh, an assumed superiority or valuing somebody more than others, assuming they're more valuable or more beloved by God because they're in that particular group. But it's okay to have a particular burden, especially when it comes from the kind of love that wants what's best for them, what we see with Paul. Right? He's not just saying, Jewish people are cool. I like their music better. That's not what he's saying. Paul is saying, oh, these are my, my kinsmen according to the flesh. I want them to know Jesus. That's what my heart beats for. And so because we're going to have those particular burdens sometimes, those particular burdens that are okay, sometimes when stuff like the things that have happened this week go down, some of us will feel the pain of that tragedy more deeply than others. And because we're going to feel it differently, sometimes that can lead us to look at other people's suspects, right? And to turn it into a you versus me type thing when instead what we should do when we notice a brother or sister grieving differently because they have a different kind of relationship and association with what's going on is that should lead us to seek understanding and to love and to bear one another's burdens. This is one of the incredible things about being part of the family of God. You never have to bear a burden by yourself ever again. God has given you an entire family to come alongside you and bear those burdens with you. But I want you to notice that as Paul does this and he talks about his family according to the flesh, even while he does that, he's talking uh, to the Romans, a church made up of both Jews and Gentiles, and he addresses them as brothers because they are his family in the deepest sense. The, the, the bond that comes with those who know Christ is deeper than any other bond possible. And that deep bond should lead us to want to bear one another's burdens. Amen. That's a side note. If I do too many side notes, we're going to be here too long. Paul says it's his heart's desire that they may be saved. And this is, again, what he's heartbroken over. And what I want to ask you is whether or not you are ever heartbroken, not just for your own situation, but for the situations of other people. Do you ever look at difficulties that are happening in the lives of other people and respond with heartbreak? Right? There's a lot of room for heartbreak because of the things we've seen this past week. But I wonder if the situations of other people ever keep you up at night. There's so many times when the only sorrow or anguish that we ever feel is over our own situation. Right, we, we never really are brokenhearted about what's going on in anybody else's life, and that is not loving our neighbors in the way that Christ has called us to. And that's not loving one another in the way that Christ has called us to. Because here's the thing, when you love somebody, 
you have good desires for them. You're not indifferent. It's not like, oh, it doesn't matter what goes on in their life. If you actually love somebody as yourself, then the same way you very naturally seek your own good, you brush your teeth, you jump out the way when cars come in the way, you just do that, right? If we're to love others as ourselves, that means we're seeking their good. And when we see good not happening, it should bother us. It should give us some sorrow and some grief. Loving our neighbor as ourselves means that when we see things in the lives of other people, we should be as bothered by it as we would be if it was us. We should be as bothered by that person, our neighbor, lacking a meal as we would be if it was us lacking a meal. And the way that I know this is true and it's not a stretch is that Paul says, I would rather be cut off from Christ than them. I wonder if you ever feel unceasing anguish for situations in other people's lives. That compassion should be in us, and it should especially be in us when it comes to people's eternity. What Paul is talking about here. Paul wants them to be saved. That's his desire. But you notice the desire doesn't get trapped in his heart. He says, that's my heart's desire and prayer. That makes its way into his actions. It drives him to his knees to pray. And so just so you know, When Paul says it's his prayer that they will be saved, he means that. He doesn't use the word prayer like we do, right? Sometimes we use the word prayer as a synonym for desire or wish. Are you going to get that promotion? That's my prayer, right? Y'all ever going to paint the outside of this building? That's our prayer, which kind of means that would be nice, right? Sometimes we use the word prayer just to mean hope or wish, But when Paul says this, he means he actually prays, which doesn't seem very extraordinary to us, but it's powerful because one of the most loving things you can do for somebody is to pray for them, to talk to God on their behalf. I was watching a a, a TV show where there was this guy who worked for the president, and this lady, she handed a letter to his assistant, the president's assistant, and he had no power to do anything for her, but because he cared, He took that letter and he passed it on to the president, which was a loving thing for him to do. He could do nothing about it, but he went to the one who could do something about it on her behalf, which is exactly what we do when we pray. Where we have no power over all things, we know the God that does, and he's much more powerful than the president of the United States. It's a loving thing for us to go before him on other people's behalf, and These days, most of the time, when people in public talk about prayer, they talk about it in contrast to action. Like whenever there's a a mass shooting, people on Twitter love to mock politicians who put out statements saying their thoughts and prayers are with victims. And that those statements are worth mocking if prayers just means positive thoughts, because a positive thought has never done a single good thing for a single person. But if we're talking about actual prayer, then of course it's not to be mocked. When, uh, when we pray, we have to understand that prayer is not something we do instead of action. Prayer is not something we do before action. Prayer is a particular kind of action. So when we pray together on Sunday morning, like we've just done, or when we pray together the, the first Sunday evening of every month, we're doing an important part of the work God has called us to do. Right? It's not the only work we do, but it's at the top of the list. And it's not a bonus. It's not extracurricular activity. It's the one thing that must be paired with every other act that we do. Do you understand how central prayer is in that way? That there's no other act that we should do without this one accompanying it? It's, it's foolish to try to do things without praying. If somebody wants a ride, 
And I say, I'll give you a ride, but I don't fill up my tank beforehand. Nice thought. Nice of me to give him my time, but we ain't getting there. Right? And in the same way, like, hey, it's nice for you to, you know, tell someone about Jesus, and you should. But at the end of the day, you don't have the power to change their heart and give them a new one. Right? If there's actually going to be fuel that will make anything actually work, we should go to the God who can do something about it and ask on their behalf, which is exactly what Paul is doing here. We don't have all the power and authority, but God does. We have to be a praying people. Quick encouragement to come to Sunday evening prayer when we do it at the first of every month. It's not really a, it doesn't seem that appealing because it's not like a Sunday service where you get to watch and there's songs. You don't have to do nothing. You just get to watch and some of it's entertaining and John might tell a joke while he's preaching and you laugh before you zone off again, you know. It's not as appealing and it's not really that fun. It doesn't seem that fun. But if things have to seem fun for us to give our time to it as a church, we're not going to be very fruitful. There are a lot of very mundane, regular things that God calls us to do often, and prayer is one of them. I want to encourage you to come to that corporate time of prayer, and if you feel a little guilty, good. So with that in mind, I want to ask you, whose salvation have you been desiring and praying for in this past week? Take a moment to think about your past week. Who that doesn't know Jesus, have you been desiring that they would know Jesus? Have you been in unceasing anguish about because they don't know Jesus and asking God to save them? I want you to think about that for a moment. A quote I heard that I love is, um, you know, if, if God answered all of your prayers from the last week, how many people would have got saved? That's a good question to ask ourselves. This is the main reason that we planted this church, because we want people to be saved. And the salvation of people in our neighborhood and in our city and in our world should be on our minds all the time. Look, there's some things we don't know about people when we meet them for the first time. We don't know their likes and dislikes. We don't know all their individual needs. One thing we do know every time is that their ultimate and greatest need is to be saved, is to know Jesus. We have plenty of other needs, yes, but for all of us, our greatest need is to know Jesus. And if we try to secure a relationship with God on our own, we'll just be ensuring that we'll never have one. It has to come through Christ. So I want to encourage you to think of a person right now. Write their name down, type it in your phone, whatever it is, and commit to pray that God would save them. Commit to pray for them every day this week that God would save them. And you know one thing that happens when you pray God will save people? You begin to feel compelled to tell them about Christ when you see him. If you've been thinking about and praying that God would save someone and God has actually given you that message, God begins to open it. You'd be surprised if you ask God to open doors to share the gospel, how many more open doors you'll recognize. Prayer is a necessary part of our evangelism as a church. Quick side note. This is my longest point. Don't get worried. Let's keep going. Somebody may say this. Okay, we're talking about praying for people's salvation. Paul is in anguish because his kinsmen according to the flesh. His, his Jewish brothers and sisters are not saved. Somebody may say, saved from what? Well, Paul has talked about what uh, we need to be saved from in the book already. In chapter 1, he talks about the wrath of God being revealed against unrighteousness. The just and righteous, holy anger of God. And sometimes we don't like that. But here's the thing. Even this week, 
we all have felt angry when we see injustices and crimes in our world, especially those that are caught on video. So it's one thing to hear about it, but then we see something on video where it seems like somebody, you know, seems like something unjust has happened, and we see that with our eyes, and it angers us. Imagine being the God of the universe who sees all things at all times, and who has a perfect sense of justice and holiness and righteousness and loves goodness more than we could ever imagine. Imagine being him. What we need to be saved from is a God who has a just, good anger at crimes. And here's the thing. God gets angry not just at the crimes that we get angry at and the ones that we see, but any crime against him, any rebellion against him, our lies, our pride, our lust, our bitterness. God's wrath is something we need to be saved from because all of us have sinned against him. And so as Paul thinks about this and the reality that hell is real, that there is an eternity of separation from God, this is why Paul has unceasing anguish because it bothers him deeply that his brothers according to the flesh should be in it and we need to be saved from it. And God sent Jesus to do that. And we should desire that people will be saved which is offensive these days, to want somebody to be saved because we're in a day and age where it's very offensive to suggest that for any reason you have a message that somebody may need. comes off as self-righteous, right, where people think you're wrong if you ever think somebody else is wrong. I'll let you wrestle with the irony of that. How dare you think somebody else is wrong? That's, that's wrong. But Scripture makes clear that Scripture makes clear that it is a good thing for us to want others to be saved, and we should pray. And as our culture increasingly feels like it's wrong to want something for somebody that they don't want for themselves, there's going to be that little voice in the back of our head like, don't do that. Don't say that. That's self-righteous. I want the voice in the back of your head to be the voice of God, where he's commanded us not only to desire people to be saved and to pray for them to be saved, but to tell them about the good news that can save them. Last thing I want to say here. The gospel is of first importance, and Scripture is clear that our greatest need is to know Jesus. This is why this is Paul's main thing he's thinking about. But it's not our only need at the moment, meaning there are other needs that we still have that the gospel doesn't meet right now, which sounds like heresy. Let me just tell you what I mean. You need food and water or you'll die, right? So while the gospel does nourish us spiritually, you can only fast for so long before you go ahead and meet Jesus. You fast for a really, really long time, you will get very close to Jesus, okay? We need food and water. And the Word of God doesn't meet those needs immediately. Now, of course, there's a day when all pain is gone, all tears are gone. Life is absolutely perfect. But that day isn't right now. There are many things Jesus purchased that we don't have access to at this moment. So there are other needs. And here's the thing that we don't want to do as Christians is when people's needs arise and when people are suffering to say, "Ah, all you need is the gospel. But this is my God. All you need is the gospel. I want to encourage you not to do that. Scripture doesn't say you have eternal life, so don't worry about anything else. That's not what Scripture calls us to do. This, the gospel is of first importance, but that doesn't mean that nothing else is important. Jesus, who came, who made clear that he came to save sinners, didn't treat people's pain and suffering as if it was unimportant. So I want to encourage you to remember God has called us to love people 
and to think not only about their future and their eternity, but also to think carefully about how to love them where they are right now. Where they are right now. And God makes clear that as we care about people and love people, that it assists that witness of the gospel. And it doesn't make sense to be like, hey, I love you. Let me tell you this message because I love you. But hold on real quick. This particular thing is, uh, don't worry about that. The gospel, I love you. Do you think they'll believe that we love them and we care about their eternity if we don't care about what we see right in front of us? This undercuts our, our gospel message of love when we don't love people where they are in the moment. We refuse to grieve. We refuse to mourn. And we just want to throw out cliche statements that may be true, but there may be more to say and more ways to walk with people and more ways to love people. So we have to engage. We have to care about people. We have to love. We have to act. Our citizenship is in heaven, but that doesn't mean we have no work to do now. So as we do, though, we want the gospel to be of first importance. One pastor said we care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. And that's a good perspective to have. So like Paul, we should be desiring more than anything that people will be saved because hell is real and that should break our hearts. And the more we try to erect our own righteousness, the further we get away from him. So Paul's going to tell us further why he's praying for them, what seems to be in the way of their salvation at the moment, right? So number one was the need, salvation, and number two is the barrier. Number two is the barrier. There are two reasons why somebody who needs help may not actually want to receive it. There are two main reasons, and the two reasons are related. Those two reasons are ignorance and arrogance. They don't understand they need help, and they just want to do it by themselves. Those are two sides of the same coin, ignorance and arrogance. And Paul's going to point out those two barriers in the hearts of his Jewish brothers and sisters. Let's read verse 2 again. It says, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Paul says that his Jewish brothers and sisters have been zealous, but not according to knowledge. That's their ignorance. I hope we understand that zeal by itself is not a virtue. There are zealous racists and there are zealous murderers. There are zealous adulterers. There are zealous money embezzlers. Zeal is only good when it's aimed at something good. Because you know somebody can be really zealous and enthusiastic about something and be wrong. One very clear example of this for me, and I can say this because he's not here, is how Pastor Richard talks about LeBron and the Cavs. Okay? He's very zealous and enthusiastic, but logic leaves him. I have another friend in this room like that. I'm not going to call him out, but his name starts with the A and ends with Lix Medina. <laughs> we could be watching the game. LeBron could be 0 for 30, and Pastor Richard will be like, see, he missed 30 in a row. That's why he's 10 times better than Jordan. He can miss every shot and still be better. And I'm like, bro, stop. You're very enthusiastic, but you're wrong. We can be both zealous and sincere and wrong, even with more serious things. You think about politicians. There can be politicians who are crooked and don't really care, but others who really do care, want to do the right thing, want to help people, and you commend them for that, but they can still be wrong. You can be zealous and sincere and wrong all at the same time. 
But for some reason, when we get to religion or relationship with God, we assume that good intentions are the only thing that really matters. We assume as long as somebody is sincerely pursuing what they think about God, then they're fine, right? And so we cringe at the thought of calling someone's religious or spiritual pursuits wrong. Even as I said that, some of y'all cringed. It's a universal symbol for cringe, shoulders up, head down. We don't like to hear that. But... Again, zeal doesn't mean we're right. So like when I was in school, I did this more often than one should, where there's an assignment based on particular reading. There's a quiz on it the next day, and I read the wrong part. Even the times when I was like, I'm really going to do good this time. And I read it really carefully, and I studied really carefully, and I was ready to go. And I got there, and I read for the wrong section. So the quiz is there. There are questions, and I'm thinking, hmm, don't remember that from last night. And I can't just write in all the spaces, my bad, I did the wrong. You know, that's not how it works. Just because I was really zealous and I prepared, that means nothing because I was zealous and I was preparing for the wrong thing. And as we all know, professors are incapable of empathy. So they don't care. My zeal, my preparation does me no good. And similarly with God, if he's mapped out a particular way to follow him and then come to know him, it doesn't matter if we're sincere and zealous if we're wrong, if we don't follow the path he's mapped out. So you can prepare to meet God all you want, but it's useless if you prepare it the wrong way. Zeal doesn't cover a multitude of sins. And this is important for us to remember in a churchy city like Atlanta or like Dallas where I grew up. Well, so many of us often go to church just as a way of life, right? If you grew up in the South or with Christian family members, you may have just kind of always gone to church. That's just a part of your life. But there are people who have been going to a particular church and are members, served on the usher board, helped people get to their seats, passed out peppermints to kids in the lobby, fed the hungry, and have been there forever, but don't know Jesus and are lost and need to be saved. Right? That may be some of us, and, and I hope that you don't assume your attendance to this building, any other church building, can save you. That's not what saves us. We shouldn't assume that because someone is sincere and zealous and active that they know Jesus. So it's good for us to ask ourselves sometimes, why is it that we think we know Jesus? Right? What, what is it that makes us think we're saved? If it's based on our religious activity, then we should think again. But with our neighbors, friends, and families, it's good sometimes to have conversations just about, you know, why is it that you call yourself a Christian? And you'd be surprised sometimes. And it's a good thing for us to encourage people, remind them we cannot earn our way to God. The particular kind of knowledge Paul talks about them lacking is close to the knowledge that we lack sometimes. So listen, he says, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They knew God required righteousness, but they thought, that they could meet his requirement themselves. And Paul makes that clear at the end of chapter 9. He said, uh, Israel pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were by works. They didn't understand what God was doing in Christ, that Christ had died for our unrighteousness. So when it talks about the law, these are God's commands, what God has said we're to do. And he's saying his Jewish brothers and sisters thought that they can make their way to God by just doing their best to just try to Obey all his commands. And Paul is saying the reason that they are not righteous enough, the reason they didn't meet God's righteous requirement is because they thought they could do it themselves. 
They didn't know they needed to believe on Christ. And in that ignorance, they held on to their arrogance. They thought they could do it themselves and establish their own righteousness. This would be like if you found out you were sick and dying, and the way you responded was by going to build a new hospital. But you don't know how to build nothing. You don't know how a hospital should be laid out. You don't know any doctors or nurses, and you don't have no money. So then not only is it unnecessary for you to build a new hospital, not only is it foolish, but it's not going to work. You'll die in the process. When instead, you should just drive to the hospital that already exists, and they know what to do to save you. Trying to establish our own righteousness is trying to build our own hospital. Why are we trying to recreate the wheel? God has already provided it for us. And you see, Paul contrasts God's righteousness with ours because they're opposed to each other. The longer we cling to our own righteousness, the longer we refuse to submit to his. That's why they refused to submit to God's. They were ignorant and they were arrogant. And this is why evangelism is so important, because those of us who don't know Jesus don't know him because we need to be humbled and we need to be informed. As believers in Jesus, our job in evangelism is to inform, and we pray that God would humble. We get to proclaim a message, and we pray that God would open eyes to submit to God's righteousness instead of trying to make our own. Some of us, even as believers, though, are still carrying this burden of thinking we need to build our own righteousness, even after we've trusted Jesus, so that we're no longer ignorant, but we're still a little bit arrogant. We still think it's kind of based on our righteousness. When I pray, God likes me because I prayed a lot yesterday. And I went to church, and even though eight people prayed, I paid attention to all of them. God likes me a little bit more today. And times when we don't uh, do the things we're supposed to, we're a little afraid to go to God. Again, thinking that we have to kind of build our own righteousness to get to him. And when we do this, we momentarily reject the work of Jesus in exchange for our own. It's like looking at what Jesus did and saying, thanks, but I'm going to do a little more just in case. It's like when you don't trust somebody to do something, like you're going to bring drinks to the party. Yeah, yeah, you're like, "Mm -hmm. I'm going to get some drinks just in case. I don't know if you're going to do that. And this is what we do to Jesus. Like, I know you said you got me righteousness-wise, but let me just make sure I store up some just in case you don't really come through. That's what we do when we momentarily begin to depend on our own righteousness as our way to God. And the interesting thing is, the beautiful thing about knowing Jesus is other religions are calling you to earn your way, to do enough good works. And Christianity is saying, no, no, no. any attempts to do that are foolish, right? The Bible is aware of how broken we are. You think you're the only one who knows how broken you are. Scripture knows too. God knows too. And it's true to life when it says no, no, none of us are going to reach this state of perfection that gets us to God. And Christianity recognizes that. Two other quick notes on self-righteousness. It not only keeps us from God, it keeps other people from God. So when we, uh, you know, pretend like we just have it all together, we're perfectly righteous just because we're cool like that, that does not make people want to come to your church and meet Jesus. Because they're like, I know you're not righteous like that, so you're delusional. I don't know why we think pretending to be perfect would make people want to know Jesus. Because even if they do think you're perfect, they're like, well, that's for perfect people, not messed up people like me. Instead, what draws people to Christ is saying, yep, we're both messed up. And let me tell you, this is where I found hope and salvation, and he's the only way. I think you'd benefit from the same. 
Self-righteousness also ruins relationships. A lot of our marriages would be in much better shape if we weren't under the impression that it was our righteousness that was most important. We would blame people a lot less if we were more aware of our lack of righteousness. We would have better relationships. We would stop trying to win every argument. You know, sometimes you know you're wrong, but you're like, but I'm in it now. I just got to finish. <laughs> Making up new stuff. Well, I said that because I was playing devil's advocate, and it was a test, and you failed. Let me, you know, it's like, stop. You don't have to be perfectly righteous. That's the whole thing. We're not. That's why we need Jesus. The need is salvation. The barrier is ignorance and arrogance, our own self-righteousness. The solution, number three, the solution. What God did to lift that burden, that we wouldn't have to build our own righteousness, is life-giving. He sent Jesus. This is what verse 4 says. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So remember this. You know, chasing righteousness on your own will only ensure that you never get it. And he's saying Christ is the end of the law. What does that mean for Christ to be the end of the law? Paul has already pointed to how his Jewish brothers and sisters have been interacting with the law. They've been trying to keep it with perfection and earn their way to God, right, to try to build this kind of beautiful work by themselves and then offer it to God and say, please accept me in light of this. And Paul is saying, no, no, because Jesus came, it's the end of that. It's the end of trying to justify yourself with all the stuff that you can do. But it doesn't say just for everyone. Christ came, so now everyone's good. He's saying for those who believe, everyone who believes. Right? He's saying Christ came, and if you've trusted in Christ, you have his righteousness. This is the the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Right? The way that we're justified before God, seen as right before God, righteous before him, is by faith. This is a burden that we don't have to carry, right, of presenting ourselves righteous before God. We've been made righteous by faith in Christ. Christ is the end of trying to make ourselves righteous. And this is why Jesus is the only way to God, because there is no other religious figure, teacher, person who offers you the righteousness of God. No one else even offers us what we need. If we're to stand before God, we have to be righteous. And the only way that happens is if God gives it to us, a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. A righteousness that says, hey, I know I'm not righteous enough, so I submit to his. A righteousness that looks at our own sins and the punishment we deserve and says, well, Christ took that punishment for me. A righteousness that says Jesus rose from the dead. And I want to cling to him that I can raise as well righteousness through faith in Christ. That's good news. And this is why we don't have to be afraid to proclaim it to others because we're not putting a burden on people when we do. We're lifting a burden off of them. We don't have, we treat it like we got bad news. Like, hey, if you ever got time, I just want to tell you something. Now, I mean, if you just, if you at my house and I just happen to have the Bible open, I'll tell you. We should be enthusiastic to share the best news that's ever existed. We are lifting a burden off of people. You don't have to earn your way to God. Jesus did it for you. And if you trust in him, all our brokenness and jacked up penalty we deserve for our sin, all of us. Christ took that on himself. You trust in Christ. His righteousness is put in your account. It's like if you broke and you and Bill Gates trade accounts. Bill Gates bears your brokenness, and you get treated 
like you founded Microsoft. That's nice. That's, that's what happens with Christ. We, we switch accounts, righteousness accounts. He takes the penalty for our sin, and we get treated like we live this righteous life. And that's a burden we get to lift off of people. So my prayer is that you would trust in that good news in a way that it, you know, lifts your burdens. And then out of that joy, you'll want to share that with others. Last thing I'll say here, this kind of uh, a burden being lifted, trusting in Christ for our righteousness. This is the thing that unites us as a church. John has already pointed this out. You know, we look around, there's a lot of different people from a lot of different backgrounds, right, with a lot of different feelings, with a lot of different everything. And what unites us is not that we just like the same music, right? It's not that we just like to be in this neighborhood or this building. What unites us is that we're in Christ, Right? We, we have the same Lord, same faith, same baptism, and we've had the same burden lifted by the same Savior. And that means there's not a single one of us who's more precious to God than the other. There's not a single one of us who's at a higher standing with God than the rest of us because God gave us all this standing through the righteousness of Jesus. And that's really good news. So my prayer is that we'll be united in that as a church. We'll rejoice in that as a church. That we'll share that as a church. And that if God gives grace for this church to grow, he'll continue to give grace for lots of different people to come, all to trust in that same Christ. The need is salvation. The barrier is our own self-righteousness. And the solution is Jesus, God giving us his righteousness. And that is really, really good news. So I want to encourage you. If you want to have that I got this philosophy for the rest of your life, that's fine. You can wrestle through that. When it comes to your relationship with God, I got this, will only keep you from them. Right? Chasing righteousness on your own will only mean you won't get it. But it's available in Jesus. Amen? All right, let me pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you again so much for your word, and we thank you for what you've done for us in Jesus. Father, it is amazing that we can come in this room room of a bunch of different people in a time of a lot of division, and we can rejoice in the same Christ. And it's good to be able to look forward to our eternal hope, right? It's not as if our problems don't matter, but you've told us that these momentary afflictions are light compared to the eternal weight of glory that's waiting for us. That's good news. Help us to rejoice in that together. Father, and we pray that uh, this good news will not only lead us to share it with others, but God, to love others as you've loved us. We ask in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.